Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this beautiful Sunday morning that you've given us to assemble together. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as we examine your word to be challenged in our own hearts and in our own lives. And Lord, that each one of us in this room would endeavor to live for you in the way that you would have us to live. We ask for your direction. We ask for your grace that we may serve you and bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. All right. We'll have those that are going to the children's church dismissed at this time. And the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Second Corinthians chapter 7. We'll get there in a few minutes. We've Got several other verses to do uh, to look at before we we get to Second Corinthians chapter seven, but we'll be spending uh, uh, the majority of our time this morning there. And uh, what we're going to be doing, Lord willing, over the next uh, several Sunday mornings, next this Sunday morning and three additional, is there are three basic words, four basic words in the Bible that deal with salvation. The word repent, the word believe, the word call, and the word receive. If the Bible talks about salvation, one of those four words is going to be in the text. uh, They have uh, their definitions and their meanings actually living them out as the Bible says that we ought to do. There's a great deal of overlap there, and I hope that we'll be able to see that before the end of these four sermons that you cannot do one without doing all four. You cannot truly repent without believing, without calling, and without receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet there are many people who have what we would call a incomplete salvation. Now, an incomplete salvation is no salvation. You can't be halfway saved. And uh, uh, that's why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going through on Sunday nights right now, uh, at the end of that sermon, he ends it with a warning. He says, there's going to be many that are going to say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord. And what's his answer going to be? Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. See, there's many, many churches out there that teach that you can have salvation and you can lose it. That's not in the Bible. The Bible gives us an eternal salvation. We have, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, just crazy people on the other end to say you can have a salvation and never lose it, but you can't know that you have it. Uh, they call them Calvinists. Uh, I just don't know how you get more silly than that, but that's where, where people go. And, and so this morning, I would li- like to just simply deal with the question, what is biblical repentance? What does the word repent actually mean? And uh, in order to uh, narrow our scope, maybe we ought to take care of some of the extremes. Uh, uh, The word repentance has had a great deal of controversy over 
uh, the last decades. I remember while a uh, young student in, in Bible college, uh, there was a uh, great controversy. It was in uh, Christian, quote-unquote, Baptist publications and everything. And, and this group of preachers had, had risen up and they were arguing the point that all you needed to do to be saved was say the words, Dear Jesus, save me. That repentance had no part of salvation whatsoever. And that all you had to do was pray that prayer and you would be guaranteed eternal salvation. Uh, No uh, emotions attached, no anything, just say those words. And I I remember hearing stories and talking to some people, and there was a fellow, uh, actually, uh, at that time, uh, I was working with Brother Clayton just after Bible college, and and we were in a church, and uh, one of my uh, team members there came back. He said, we were on the porch, and he said, this young girl answered the door, and the guy with me said, you need to be saved. And she was like, get off my porch, weirdo. And he was like, all you got to do is say these words. And he wouldn't leave until she said those words, dear Jesus, save me. Then he, he said, now you're saved forever and left. And, and he was shaken. He said, wow, what, what is this? And I said, well, this is a reaction. You see, before that time, there had been another group of preachers that were preaching that unless you, if you experience true repentance, you would never sin again. That true repentance brought you to a point of near sinless perfection here on earth. Now, according to that definition, how many of us are saved? Not a one. But these people were preaching it. And what I want to challenge you today is, Repentance is not some magical formula that changes you into a sinless person. We'll we'll find in our sermon this morning, eight different times Jesus used, challenged his church to repent in the letters to the churches in Revelations 2 and 3. So, repentance does not just go out the window the moment you get saved. That both of these extremes, the, the proper word is heresy. That means a doctrine that excludes you from salvation. That's what heresy is. You see, if you believe that you can only receive true repentance by living sinlessly perfect, who are you trusting in for repentance? Yourself. That's not salvation. If, on the other hand, you think you can order God into taking you to heaven just as you are with all of your sin and never once leaving anything or obeying one commandment in His Word, who just became God? Well, you did. Uh, And, by the way, there's only one. And you're not Him. Trust me. You see, true... Bible repentance. Well, let's let me go back here, back up a minute. 
The reason we have all of these people arguing with each other is because, you see, that first group of preachers who were preaching sinless perfection had looked at, quote-unquote, the Christian community, and they said there's so much sin and so much worldliness among God's people, they must not be saved. And so they came up with this heresy that you had to live sinlessly perfect in order to be saved. Then this other group comes up and says, you can't live sinlessly perfect. And then, so they go just, and both groups end up just as wrong. Could I challenge you today as we look at this word? Number one, God's word does not need your protection. It's its own protection. And when we try to expect Uh, protect God's Word when we try to make ourselves the personal spokesman for God, what we're going to do is we're going to enter the realm of false doctrine. You cannot help it. You must go there. Because God's Word is its own protection. God's Word protects me, not the other way around. Amen? And your only other alternative is to join the groups and the cults and the isms and the schisms that say that God's Word needs some special type of understanding. Uh, uh, The word is elucidation. uh, uh, Produced by man, some special light that only you possess. Peter takes care of that in his epistle, that no scripture is of any private interpretation. Uh, I hope you never get tired of hearing me say this. It's a warning that we must keep. If you're the only person in the world smart enough to figure this out, you're not near as smart as you think you are. In fact, you're wrong. Uh, the own, God's Word is simple. It's meant for all of us to understand. God's Word is not meant for you to protect it or give special light to it, or special understanding. God's Word is meant to be obeyed. Now, we dealt in some detail with this on Thursday night as we're going through the, uh, some of the difficult passages. And Peter talked about those that rest or wrestle with the Scriptures to their own destruction. And, and we're not go- I'm not going to take time to re-preach Thursday night's message But I want us to examine this word repentance from a Bible perspective. You see, let me just quote a few verses from our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That's in Luke chapter 13. And some people had come and told Jesus about these uh, uh, people that Pilate had uh, killed and And Jesus said, listen, if you don't repent, you're going to perish. And another group was killed in an accident. And, and of course, the the thing was there that that, um, uh, if, if something bad happens to you, God was judging you. And Jesus said, listen, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So Jesus simply established that repentance is necessary for salvation. When he was criticized in Luke chapter 15, he said, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, moreover than ninety and nine just persons who have 
No need of repentance. A few verses later, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. You know, some the songwriter got that wrong. He talks about the angels singing. It says, in the presence of the angels. It's not the angels that are singing. It's the saved that are on the other side that are rejoicing. And God himself, that another sinner has repented. Now, let's look at... Uh, oh, let me finish this here. Peter, when they heard these things, they held their peace, glorified God, saying, Then God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. That's Acts chapter 11 and verse 8. After Peter gets back to Jerusalem and recounts the story of Cornelius, the Roman centurion who got saved, they said... the. The church there at Jerusalem rejoiced and said, God's going to give the Gentiles repentance, salvation. And Paul, as he was summing up his ministry, he said, uh, But showed first unto them of Damascus and in Jerusalem through all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So this wasn't specifically to Jesus, this, this is all the way through your Bible. Repentance applies to you and I today. Now, if we just look up the word in the dictionary, let me read you a few definitions here. Definition one is reflective, to affect oneself with contrition or regret for something done, etc. Definition number two, to cause one to feel regret. Definition number three, to feel contrition, compunction, sorrow, or regret for something one has done or left undone. To change one's mind with regard to past action or conduct through dissatisfaction with it or its results. Definition number four, to view or think of any action, etc., with dissatisfaction and regret to be sorry for. Now, those definitions are from the Oxford English Dictionary. That's what the English word repent means. And guess what? They're, they're pretty spot on. Uh, they've covered a lot of what the word repent means. And yet, I want to challenge you that a dictionary definition only goes so far. Uh, we need a Bible definition. And where we're going to find that, I hope you're in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 7. And we're going to take a few moments and examine this passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul gives us an understanding of what repentance truly is. And we'll just read the entire context here. Verse 5, For when we were come into Macedonia... Our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God, that comforted those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. 
For I perceive that the same epistle made you, hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of this world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all these things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now, Paul was writing in his second letter to the Corinthians. If you'll remember, in his first letter, he had addressed some issues in the church, one in particular about immorality in the church. And uh, Paul was very harsh, and he was dealing with that problem. And he says here that in response to this letter that he wrote... He said, I do not repent. I have no regrets that I wrote this letter, though I did. How many of you have ever done that? I mean, sometimes as a parent, you think you ought not be so harsh. And then you realize that that's what it took to solve the problem. I remember uh, many years ago, I was dealing with a problem. We had some uh, Mormon missionaries that were picking on... uh, uh, a man that was attending our services, and and he was, anyway, uh, he was a little susceptible to that kind of thing, and he called me. I said, listen, next time they're there, call me up. And so they came over, and he called me up, and he said, Pastor, they're here again. They won't leave. So I drove over there, and sure enough, just as I pulled up these Two Mormon missionaries were making a quick exit. Apparently, he had told them his pastor was coming. And and I I still don't know what really possessed me. I trusted it was more the Lord than the flesh. And I rolled down the window of the van and I just said, Hey, you! Come here! And they walked over. And uh, we spent about the next 15 minutes in very heated discussion and uh, the young men, one of them started up saying, you know, this is a free country. I can do whatever I want. I said, yeah. I said, you go over to this poor guy's house and you eat his food and you won't leave when he asks you to leave. And you just keep. I said, what kind, of a, what kind of person are you that you would do that to somebody? I said, you sound like a little bit like your, your founder, Joseph Smith. I said, do you know anything about him? I said, he was a pedophile, and he's this and that, and he's all these terrible things. I said, he died in a mob because the wicked things he had done were so reprehensible, the people of that community would not allow him to come to trial. They thought he was going to escape, and so they broke into the prison to hang him, and in that process, he died. What, What a wonderful, you know, and if you read the Mormon papers, they make it sound like he was a martyr that died like Jesus did. wasn't true at all. 
And uh, when I was done, I was going, wow, that was over the top. Uh, uh, Lord, forgive me. Well, several years later, I got a phone call from one of those Mormon missionaries. He said, right after you did that, he said, I got sick. I got real sick. I was diagnosed with cancer, and I was laying there in the hospital, and he said, I started thinking about those things you told me, and I want you to know I got saved. I said, wow, that wasn't in the flesh after all. Maybe I could do that again some... No, Um, then it would be in the flesh, now wouldn't it? That's what Paul was saying. He said, listen, I, I did repent. I felt bad about writing such a harsh letter to you. But now I understand that was the Lord directing me. And I'm not going to be sorry for doing what the Bible says. And you see, he just used the word repent twice, didn't he? He, this, and this using of the word repent fits perfectly with our, our dictionary here. He, he had regret. He had a change in heart. Then he repented of being repentant and said, I'm not going to because what I did was what God wanted me to do. He said, but here's what it did for you. He said, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were for a season now I rejoice that ye were not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. Now we have to be careful here. You can't have repentance without some emotion attached to it. But let me help us here. We have a lot of different emotional responses in human beings, do we not? I mean, you have some people, you just, I mean, some of my children, all I have to do is look at them. Like, you shouldn't have done that. And they're starting tears running down the face. Other ones, uh, I don't know what you do. And, and, and But you, you sit there and you say, you you go on and on and you, you correct them and you really come down hard on them and when it's all done, oh, is that over, Dad? And you're sitting here going, man, I didn't even get through. But here's what I'm telling you is both of them changed. Don't get caught up in this emotional testing. Well, I didn't cry when I got saved. Did I really repent? Well, let's move on. There's, there's got to be some remorse. There's got to be an understanding that what I did was wrong. But how many people have you met or heard stories about that cry crocodile tears? They have all the outward signs, but nothing inward changes. You see... There's got to be this regret. He said there was godly sorrow that worked repentance. And we come down here, he says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of this world worketh death. You know, people are starting to take notice and trying to do something, and we've had this uh, incredible spate of suicides that just seemed to hit the news. All these famous people and, 
And in New York City in particular, we've had a lot of problems with uh, five or six taxi drivers over the last six or eight months that have committed suicide because they can't pay the bills and they've lost everything. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. You know why a person commits suicide? It's because they lose hope. They have no way out. Do you think a person goes home and says, Wow, I got thousands of dollars in the bank and everything is going right. I'm going to kill myself where everything's going good. That way I'll die happy. I mean, you listen to some of these psychology professors and you would think that was the best way out. But I'll I'll tell you, that, that doesn't happen. People kill themselves because they lose hope and they have no way out. That's what the sorrow of this world does. That's why our psychiatric wards are full of people who are sorry for what they've done or what they didn't do. And they have no resolution see, biblical repentance is not just feeling bad. Physical, biblical repentance, the Bible tells us, is the result of godly sorrow. Now, here's what it does. Now, verse 11, if you want an exploded view of what repentance is and what repentance does, here it is. For behold, this self-same thing. Okay, Paul says, now I'm going to explain what happened. That she sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. You know, carelessness is a terrible, terrible thing. And, and carelessness ca- carries over into every every part of your life. How many fires have been started in homes where someone was careless with a cigarette butt? Oh, it'll go out. Well, it did. After about 14 hours and five... Five alarms and uh, several fire departments out there spraying water on the house and uh, removing the dead bodies from the building. Yeah, the, the, it eventually went out. But carelessness causes a lot of problems. And what is the first thing that repentance does? It makes you careful. Careful about what? We have to understand something. Repentance makes you careful about the wrongs that you have done. Now, let's not go to the extreme. Aren't you glad that repentance doesn't depend upon your memory? If it did, nobody would be saved. But we're careful with what we know. How many of you in serving, for, serving the Lord looked at something wrong that was in your life and all of a sudden you realized that there was several other wrong things that were attached to that one wrong thing that was bothering you? Well, that's repentance doing its work. 
It says, what carefulness it wrought in you. And then what's the next one? Yea, what clearing of yourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Clearing yourself. Dealing with sin. The only way to get rid of guilt is to allow the blood of Jesus Christ to take away those sins. Amen? Then it's paid for. And God keeps careful records. Let me tell you, that's why that verse I just quoted in 1 John chapter 1 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, the ones that we have confessed, and to cleanse us. What's that next phrase? From all unrighteousness. God takes care of it. Now, there's a cult out there, many different ones actually, that says Jesus paid for all of our sins on the cross. We no longer need to confess our sins to Him. In fact, it's an offense to God to confess your sin to Him because He already forgave Him on the cross. Now, I'll tell you, that is a heresy. God wants us to confess our sins to Him because He wants to clean our conscience and our soul. He wants us to give a chance, have the opportunity to be careful with the life that He is. That's what repentance does. What carefulness, what clearing of yourselves. What's the next one? one it, what indignation. How many of you have ever stood on a hot, nasty, terrible subway platform waiting for the train? And it comes in and it is crowded and you're going, oh no. And you try to get on and somebody comes from behind you and does that neat little thing with their backpack and pushes you two or three steps back on the platform, gets in, the doors close, and you're standing there going, that's indignation. How many of you have ever been there? I mean, you're just going, oh! Well, that, that's indignation. You're, you're like, why, why do you think you have the right to do that? They say a black BMW has the meanest drivers on the road. Uh, and say, uh, I've seen black Lexus do the same thing. I mean, just, they always go first. And, and I don't mind if you want to put your life on the line, but I don't want you putting mine on the line. How many are with me here? Indignation. And I know talking to them doesn't do any good because they can't hear you, but I do it anyway. How about you? Uh, I mean, but let me ask you a question. When is the last time you were indignant about your offenses toward God? Hello? See, that's repentance. When we understand that our sins offend 
a holy God. That is when godly sorrow is working repentance in our souls. It's something that's missing from Christianity today. We get so comfortable with a God who forgives that we forget about the offense of the cross. And if we're going to allow this thing called repentance to do its work, see, what's the next one in this list here? Fear. If we could only understand how much we have offended God. That's repentance. You see, godly sorrow works repentance. Now, if I allow these things to happen in my life, a carefulness, an examination of myself, a clearing of myself, a dealing with specific sins before a holy God, and I am not going to be indignant at God or His law, I'm going to be indignant with myself and my offenses That brings me to fear God and understand that His judgment is hanging over me. But what's the next one? A vehement desire. What's that mean? I want to get out from under that judgment that I deserve, that I have earned. And the next one is zeal. You see, desire is one thing. Zeal is desire that's attached to knowledge. Zeal is always based on some type of knowledge. I mean, that's, that's why we have all of these crazy people running around in, in, in the world today trying to kill other people because they think that they know something. Well, when is the last time you allowed the knowledge of God's holiness to drive you to God? That's zeal. Because there's only one place that I can find forgiveness in this whole world. I am so glad to tell you that forgiveness is not in the church. That forgiveness is not in doing good works. That forgiveness is not in some religious ceremony that you can perform. Forgiveness is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And so as we come to Jesus, then that last word there, I think the Holy Spirit threw it in there just to throw us all off step. Yea, what revenge! Well, what does revenge mean? You scrape my car, I'm going to scrape yours twice as hard. Well, no, revenge is trying to even the scales now, isn't it? How do I do that? By getting close to God. You see... The only way I can deal with all of the problems that I have caused God, all of the pain and the suffering, the offenses that I have brought to God, 
by staying close to Him. You see, the working definition that I want to give you of repentance is simply this. It is bringing my sin to God. In all of its horribleness, everything that it is, it is bringing my sin to God. How many of you remember doing something bad as a child, breaking something that was precious to your mother or father, or messing something up and trying to hide it? And finally, you had to stand in the presence of the offended party with your offense. Yes, mother, I, I broke the picture or the vase. Vases are worth much more than vases, I guess. Uh, that's what they tell me. Uh, I, I, I messed up or I broke the window. I mean, how do you hide a broken window? Uh, didn't work for me, promise you. That's repentance. Now, if you're standing there and saying, Okay, I did it. What are you going to do about it? Is that repentance? Absolutely not. You see... The carefulness, the clearing of yourselves, indignation, fear, vehement desire, zeal, and revenge. That takes care of that arrogant attitude, does it not? I mean thoroughly, completely, to every degree. The word repent simply means to bring my sin to God as it is, to put myself completely at the mercy of God with no hope and no respite and nothing in reserve. Does that sound how, like how you get saved? Yes? Hello? It, it was intended to because that's how you get saved, is it not? That, that's what the word repentance means. You see, in my personal life, I've got to repent or I'll never be saved. August 28, 1977, I repented of my sin and trusted Jesus as my Savior. Now, guess what? Since that date, I've had to repent of other sins. I hope that doesn't shock you. Uh, uh, that's welcome to the human race. But see, that first act of repentance set a pattern in my life so that when I err from God as a saved person, as a born-again son of God, that now I have a pattern that is established that all I do is I go back and I deal with that. Sometimes God has to do some special work because I've become careless. And I've got to get careful again. I've, I've read, read books written by preachers who say, you know, this and fill in the blank. Uh, one famous preacher wrote a whole book about grace because he wanted to smoke a pipe and other people thought it was wrong. Uh, it, 
other people is not the issue. The issue is that you smoking a pipe makes God look like he endorses that kind of behavior. That's the problem. That's not being careful now, is it? That's not being zealous of good works, is it? That, that's having no fear of God's holiness. That, that's unrepentance. I bring all of my sin. This leaves me completely at the mercy of God. But I want to challenge you that churches need to repent. Let's turn to the book of Revelation and just look a few of these verses here. And we'll go through this quickly. Take some time to reread these passages this afternoon. But Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. This is talking to the Ephesian church. If you'll remember, the condemnation that Jesus gave to this church was that they had, what? Left their first love. And in verse 5, he says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. You know what Jesus is telling the church to do? He says you need to have a change in your heart. What your affections are. Where, where your heart is centered on. Now, if he's telling that to his church, shouldn't that apply to us as individuals in the church? Shouldn't we be careful about where our heart is being drawn and what our heart is being drawn to? Should we not go down through that list of things? In chapter verse 16 of the same chapter, he's talking to another church here, and the church of Pergamos. And he is talking about, in verse 15, that they hold false doctrine. And he says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You notice the wording there is very careful. Jesus isn't going to fight against his church. But he will fight against people in the church that are holding false doctrine. How many times over the years have people come and attended for a time or, and all of a sudden something comes up? I remember one guy in particular, this was many, many years ago before we were even in this building. And he said, uh, he said, I can't come to your church anymore. I said, why not? He said, you put too much emphasis on the word of God. And I said, well, if you want to pick a reason to leave, that's a good one. In fact, I endorse it. Uh, we don't believe in the writings of any other man. Jesus said he's going to judge this church by the words of his mouth. I, I tell people, visit. If you love the Bible, you're going to love this church. Because this is who we are and what this is the only thing we're about. And one of the reasons is, we do not want Jesus judging this church by the words of this book. And he says he's going to, and so we have to be careful. Amen? He's going to tell the church in, in um, Thyatira that they had allowed Jezebel, the unsaved people, into their church to teach and to lead in leadership positions. 
And he says, if these people don't get saved, he says, I'm going to cast them into great tribulation. You notice he made a difference between the sinners in the church and the church, because the church isn't going through the tribulation, praise God. And Jesus says, I'm going to do that, fight them. In, in, in chapter 3, in verse 3, he tells the church in Sardis, the church that had a testimony that it was alive and it was dead, he said, you've got to get back to living again for me. Repent. And then let's take a moment here in verse 19. He's talking to the church at Laodicea, the church that thinks it's everything and really is nothing. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. We can summarize this in this way. The first church had left its first love. Its heart wasn't right. You know what they needed to do? They needed to repent. The second church that he told to repent was because of false doctrine. They weren't following the Bible correctly. They needed to repent. The next church had made friends with sinners. The next church had stopped living for God. But that last church was the most dangerous at all. They had a fake, false communion with God. God says you've got to throw that aside. If you're going to have real communion with me, it's going to be my way, not your way. And those, that famous plea, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Isn't that an amazing picture? Whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. He bought it with his own blood. He's standing at the door. Would you let me in? Isn't that a terrible picture? The answer is repentance, my friend. Repentance means to feel sorry or for something done or left undone to the point where a change takes place. It is the sorrow attached to the action necessary to make the object of our sorrow right. If we have sinned against God, we need to confess those sins. If we're unsaved, we need to come to God and accept that salvation. If we have allowed our heart to be turned, we need to come to God and ask Him to turn it right. If we had allowed other people to teach us false things about this book called the Bible, and I'll I'll tell you, I've known preachers on both sides of that repentance thing that just went to seed on that thing. And I, I prayed, Lord, don't let me just follow these men, let me follow you. Because the Bible is very straightforward and complete here. But what we really need is true communion with the Holy God. 
And that only happens when the blood of Jesus is applied to our souls, forgiving us of our sins. Starts when you get saved. How many of you remember the joy of the day of your salvation when you finally turned your sin over to God and got saved? You want to have that joy every day? Well, guess what? All you got to do is repent of the things that have moved you away from the Savior. Then you get back. You don't get saved over again, praise God. That happens one time when you trust Jesus as your Savior. But I'll tell you what, all of us need to take advantage of the opportunity of repentance to make sure that we're as close to God today as we were the day we got saved. And all God's people said, Dear Heavenly Father,